troubles at all? Or would you choose a life where you experience some troubles, some difficulties, some trials and hardships? Like with Greg or without Greg? (laughs) Well, let me add to that. Thinking about a life of ease or a life that where you're going to experience some trials and hardships. Is it easier to trust God in the easy things or in life's difficulties? Think about, I mean, reflect on your life. When do you tend to trust God more? Is it during life? Yep. In trials when I need it. In the trials, yes. yes. We tend to forget to trust Him as much right. when life is easy. Course, we should trust in the same in both situations. Well, we're going to look at this type of a situation out of the book of Joshua today. So, we're going to be in the Old Testament, and I've been going through the book of Joshua, and the last time uh, we touched on it, we were in chapter 6 and finished up with chapter 6, so we're going to move in to Joshua chapter 7. Now, to to give a little background while you're turning to Joshua 7, think about what has happened in the Old Testament time. The seven trumpets have sounded seven times. The people of Israel gave a great shout, and suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. The army of Israel entered the city. They put to death all the inhabitants, just as God commanded. The only people spared, as we remember, were Rahab and her family. Why? Because they believed that God, Yahweh, was the Lord of the earth. And because at the risk of her own life, remember Rahab hid the two spies that Joshua had sent in to investigate the land. But not only did the Lord command everyone in Jericho to be put to death, he commanded that the entire city be completely destroyed. God, the scripture says, had devoted the city to destruction. No Israelite was to take any personal property from the ruins of the city. The only items to be spared were the gold and silver, the precious materials that would be eventually used as part of the temple. As long as Israel obeyed God's commands, victory was assured. But if anyone of the Israelites disobeyed the Lord's commands, trouble would come upon the entire nation. Now, think about this amazing victory. What had they done? They had spent time in prayer. They had trusted God. And was the victory a military victory? No, it was the Lord's victory. They had simply marched around the city and obeyed God for this victory. But now as we move into chapter 7, we look and see that the thrill of victory gets replaced by the agony of defeat. And isn't that sometimes the story of our lives, that we go through a victory of where we were trusting God, and then we have this confidence We move into the next area without trusting him so much and experience a defeat. And you think about it, the distance 
between victory and defeat is one step. Usually only a short one. You know, we could be riding high on a cloud of, of spiritual success and the next moment find ourselves in a valley of despair. We could be like Elijah, standing victoriously on Mount Carmel, but the next we could be hiding out in a cave, fearing for our lives and complaining to God. Well, in Joshua, in Joshua 6, 18 and 19, before Jericho is conquered, God gave the people of Israel an additional command. Uh, and this command is really important to understand what happens in chapter 7. In chapter 6, 18, God says, But keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will, be set, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster on it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. So God had promised to give Israel the land of Canaan, including the bounty, milk and honey, the farms and the fields. But God had also commanded Israel to completely destroy the Canaanite religious shrines, the cities such as Jericho, because they were strongholds of paganism. So, it's, it's interesting, as, just as preparation to look into this, uh, several commentators have pointed out the contrast between chapters 2 and chapter 7, between the key figures, Rahab, and the key figure in this chapter, Achan. In Joshua chapter 2, we've read of the remarkable faith of Rahab. But now, wait a minute. Rahab wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Canaanite prostitute who believed the promise. And believing the promise, she received the blessing. We read in, we're going to read in Joshua 7 of Achan, of Achan, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah's finest family who disobeyed God and who came under God's judgment. The contrast, I think, serves to illustrate that Gentiles can receive the covenant blessings through faith in God, while even the Jews came under the cursings for unbelief. In this case, very dramatic consequences, even for the entire nation. So as we look at chapter 7, there are two streams of thought to keep in mind. One of these is Achan's sin, his disobedience. The other is really Joshua and all of Israel's sin, which was that of forgetting to trust in God, forgetting to turn to God in prayer. In verse 1, we see the background of what's going to happen throughout the next two chapters. It says right here, the Israelites, however were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. He took some of what was set apart 
and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Now Joshua, at this time, had no idea what Achan had done. All he knew was that Jericho's walls had fallen. Every living thing in the city had been put to death as God commanded, and the remains of the city had been put to the torch. With Jericho destroyed, Joshua continued to plan the campaign to take Canaan. Well, the next city that he needed to take was a city called Ai. It was a small city about 12 miles from Jericho. And so what did Joshua do? He did just like he did with Jericho. Joshua sent in men from Jericho to Ai. He sent in spies, uh, which is near beth east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, don't send the entire army up, but send only two or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are few, don't wear out all the people there. So, thinking of the victory that had just occurred in Jericho, the spies come back and they say, listen, we've spied out this city, Ai. There's nothing to it. It's a small little town. It's not even well defended. It's going to be a piece of cake. We can take this little town with only the slightest effort. There's no need to send all the men. Just a few. And as we'll learn when we, whenever we get to chapter 8, Ai really was a small city with only about 12,000 total inhabitants. And, you know, after hearing of God's promise to fight for Israel, having witnessed what has happened to Jericho, Joshua more than likely fully expected this small city, Ai, to fall quickly. Note, though, what's missing in verses 2 through 5 that we're focused on right now. There's no reference to God. Mm -hmm. In making their plans, in assessing the enemies, in going to war against Ai, they did not at all consult the Lord God Almighty. I mean, they, it seems like they were very presumptuous in making these plans without first consulting in the Lord. I mean, it's as though they had completely forgotten how Jericho was taken in the first place. Not by the force of their hands, not by their own might, not by their abilities, but by the power of God. I mean, no doubt Joshua was eager to move forward for the Lord and to conquer more territory in keeping with God's directions. He says, I know God has told us to take this land. But he moved out, probably being a little bit too self-confident mm -hmm. and resting too much in the previous victory of Jericho. And evidently, because we don't see it in Scripture, he failed to take the time to get alone with the Lord and inquire of him and seek him before moving out and taking the next step. And I think if he had, he would not have remained ignorant of the sin of Achan and would have dealt with that sin before 
going into battle. So there were really four deadly mistakes that happened. They remained ignorant of Achan's sin. They underestimated the strength of the enemy, whether it be a military army or a spiritual enemy. They overestimated their own strength, their own ability. They presumed upon the Lord and took him for granted. And I can see, even in my own life, how easy it is to, to do these things. Underestimate the strength of the enemy and overestimate my own personal strength and take the Lord for granted. So as we continue reading in verse 4, it says, So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. And as a result, the people, the people of Israel, their hearts melted and became like water. So instead of an easy victory, the men of Ai thoroughly wiped the Israeli force, inflicting casualties and death and driving them away in flight. You know, I wonder how often we can be like Joshua here. I don't know, do, do, do any of you all have a workaholic mentality? <laughs> Activity-oriented. A desire to get things done and be successful. Well, that can also be a tendency to rush into things without taking the time to spend with the Lord and draw near to Him, can't it? That can also lead to a tendency to forget to, as Scripture would say, put on the full armor of God in preparation for the battle. What happens? Well, it grieves the Spirit. It really quenches the Spirit. And it leaves us really defenseless against the enemy when we're operating in our own spirit and our own strength and our own wisdom. Doesn't it? Well, upon hearing of the news that a weakly defended city like Ai put up such a tenacious fight, the hearts of Israel, it says they melted. Suddenly now, the people were afraid of the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites did have a reputation for great ferocity. And now they're thinking, this, the Canaanites might just be able to keep the Israelites from possessing the land, from taking the land of Canaan. If things went so badly with such a small city, what's going to happen to Israel when they come up against a larger, better defended city? I mean, was Jericho just a fluke? A defeat of Ahab was not supposed to happen. What went wrong? Well, Joshua now seeks the Lord. He and the elders really go into a state of mourning as described in verses 6 through 9. 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell before the ark of the Lord with his face on the ground until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and ran from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear this, they will surround us and wipe our name from the earth. Then, what will you do about your great name? Now, there's a number of interesting points to make here. You know, I mentioned the tearing of clothes and the throwing of dust upon one's head as an act of mourning. Really, perfectly appropriate for this. The defeat was a shock. But Joshua was deeply disappointed that the men that he had sent turned their backs to the enemies. Because turning the back to an enemy is a sign of fear and humiliation. I mean, even in defeat, soldiers of Joshua's time were taught to turn their face to the enemies and not show fear. Better to die facing the enemy than to live while exposing your back and running away was, was the mentality of an army back then. And the reason for this is that it showed ferocity, it showed courage, which was important back then, really just as important as the ability to fight. And so if the people of Canaan got wind that this little tiny city and its few people had caused the Israelites to turn back, to turn their backs and run, well, if news of that got out, every city in Canaan would put up you see, a failure of the army would mean a failure that the entire nation would survive. But Joshua was also concerned that God's enemies would mock God because of Israel's failure. You see, this is a reflection on the importance of calling upon the name of God, and that's found throughout the entire Old Testament. Joshua wanted to see God's name honored. So, kind of to, to summarize where we're at so far, we've already saw that there was a lack of prayer, a failure to get along with God and seek his guidance. There was a reliance on human wisdom. When Joshua listened to the suggestion of the spies when they returned from spying out Ai, and then they relied on a past victory, overconfident in their own abilities. And so now... Moving on to chapter 10, we see what God's directions are to Joshua. Now, in, in verses, verses 10 through 15, I think something quite unusual happens here. God stops Joshua as he's praying and says, stop, wait. Basically, he's saying, get up off your knees. What are you doing on your knees right now. Be quiet. Listen to me. Get up off your knees. This is not a time to be praying. This is a time to be doing. So once Joshua stopped and started listening to God, God actually says, 
All right, you need to stop praying. Listen to what I'm going to tell you to do and go out and do it. And this is when Joshua learned what had brought about the defeat at Ai. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. Why are you on the ground? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I have appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put the things with their own belongings. Now, in in my Bible, it says uh, there's a, there's a uh, transition phrase just following this. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. Some translations might say, therefore. You know the rule, right? Mm -hmm. When you see a therefore, you have to ask what the therefore is mm -hmm. therefore. You need to pay special attention to these transitions. Because what happens here is this points out the consequences of the sin of Achan and the consequence of any unconfessed sin in general. Now, what does it say? The consequence of an unconfessed sin. Weakness. Inability to serve and live for the Lord. Sin that grieves and quenches the spirit. You think about this. This There's a truth that we see in the New Testament in several passages out of John 15, out of out of Ephesians, out of Thessalonians, and even Corinthians. All these in the New Testament say something to this. In Christ, we have the capacity to live victoriously for the Lord regardless of what we face. We have the capacity. But the ability to do so depends on our fellowship with the Savior in the power of his spirit. So we need to continually walk into the light, walk in the light to be able to keep that relationship. So this is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction now. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are things that are set apart among you. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, you must present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with things set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Wow, so with that word from the Lord, Joshua learned why they had lost at Ai. And God said he will not side with Israel until the matter of sin was dealt with. And so Joshua conducted this investigation and 
we see the investigation in verses 16 through 21. And it's interesting. They go tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, man to man. And finally, they get to Achan. And it's interesting that we see Achan did not come forth voluntarily. He did not come forth to confess or repent or throw himself on the mercy of God. God gave divine direction and Achan was discovered by supernatural means. You know, Joshua called him my son and Joshua commanded him to do four things. Give glory to the Lord, confess, tell me what you've done and do not hide it from me. And as we go through, we can see Achan had violated the eighth and ninth commandments. He had stolen property. He had coveted items of his pagan neighbors. He had violated God's instructions from Deuteronomy. He had lied. He had violated the first commandment by placing money, monetary gain, over loyalty to God. So this was not a mild thing that Achan had done. You know, what, just from this little section, what are some things that we can glean from it? Well, one that we see here from Achan is that confession without repentance or a genuine change of heart is really hollow. A confession by itself without repentance does not restore us to mm -hmm. fellowship. Why? Because repentance is a work we must do to gain forgiveness. Because without it, we still have a wrong attitude. And that wrong attitude maintains a barrier between us and God. And sometimes, uh, this is a lesson that Henry has learned, sometimes confession is too late to stop the discipline. <laughs> You know, the primary purpose of confession is not to get out of trouble or to keep us out of God's woodshed. The primary purpose of confession is to reestablish mm -hmm. the relationship, to reestablish the fellowship and turn a life over to God because we want to walk together with him under his rule, under his control, going in his direction. And so the confession may be too late to stop discipline. And, you know, we think about maybe the one of the most interesting things is the whole process here. We know Achan knew that he was doing wrong because he admitted to hiding what he had stolen. And why did he go ahead and do it? Well, why did Eve fall for all the deceptions in the garden. I think one of the reasons is that Achan, as with Eve, was dissatisfied, impatient, and self-reliant. He was using and trusting in his own strategies, his own means, to get what he wanted out of life. Well, let's take a minute to look at what Achan took. He took gold and silver. We can almost understand that. Money. Money, money, money. 
but he also took a beautiful road from Babylon that not only suggests materialism, but that he wanted to have something where he would receive the praise of men. Mm -hmm. A beautiful road would be like a king's road. You, you would be set apart. So these two things, I think, money and the praise of men, we never seek those two things at all, do we? Nope. You know, I think these two things can probably represent the various lust patterns that we all have to deal with. And if not dealt with, they can dominate our lives. I mean, think about it. The desire for position, for power, for prestige, for pleasure, possessions, praise, and recognition. Oh, our, our own strategies to find security, to find significance, to find satisfaction in life. But Jeremiah calls all these things broken cisterns, broken water pots. <coughs> For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, there's something really <coughs> ironic that we learn too. We, we see here that Achan had taken this gold, this silver, for himself. And yet, ironically, God was going to allow the Israelites to take anything they wanted from Ai once it fell. If Achan had only obeyed the Lord and had waited just a few more days, he could have taken whatever he wanted from the remains of Ai. But no, he violated God's command. I think dissatisfaction, a failure to find happiness in the Lord, produced impatience in him that caused him to covet and run ahead with his own plans. You know, I think it, uh, coveting, oh, it's only one of the Ten Commandments, but I think a lot of times it's the root, mm -hmm. the root sin against which so many of the other commandments end up, that we end up violating, is because of covetous. You know, I think I've got to point out too that you think about coveting, I think it stems from being dissatisfied with our own lot in life. We're, we're saying, by coveting something else, we're saying, I'm not satisfied. I'm not pleased mm -hmm. with what God has allowed me to have. I'm not pleased with what God has given me. It's a failure to seek our happiness in the Lord. It's a failure to trust Him as the source of our security our significance and our satisfaction. You know, Paul had a secret, and his secret was to find contentment in the Lord. And I think we need to be like Paul, always find our contentment in the Lord. Now we go on and we read about the death of Achan. 
and how the this property that he had stolen was destroyed, along with all of his own personal possessions, <clears throat> his animals, him and his family were destroyed. It seems very severe, doesn't it? But his selfish actions had placed the entire nation of Israel in jeopardy. Achan's sin was great, but I would dare say the punishment fit the crime, even though we see it as being severe. And once Achan and his family, the animals, the possession, along with the devoted things which he had stolen, once they've been totally destroyed, we then read, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. God's anger was now turned aside. And as we'll see once we get to chapter 8, the city of Ai will fall and Israel will be victorious. You know, it's unclear from all this if Achan was a true believer or not, but he was a professing believer as a part of Israel. He was a member of the covenant people of God. He had no doubt walked around, marched around the city of Jericho and had seen God's hand at work and had seen the destruction. But then he saw things lying there. He desired to have something that wasn't his. Uh, probably in the, in the words of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, It's mine! It's mine, my precious! He saw these things and wanted them. He saw, and in seeing, he lost sight of God. Think of Eve. When Eve says, I saw, it was beautiful, and I took. Well, that's how temptation operates. We need to know this. It didn't look bad. It looked good. It begins with the eye. And it drives us, it drives us to reach out and take because it's desirable. I think of the children's song. <laughs> Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above who's looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. You know, the battle is won or lost at the point of what the Puritans would have called the motivating desire. Desire, the index of your heart. You know, it says that it's what comes out of man from deep within that defiles, not what goes in. There's a, there's a momentum to sin. It's like the ball rolling down the snowy hill, getting bigger and bigger as it goes down. If there's a car on a hill and you're pushing against it and it's stopped and someone put it in neutral, you could probably hold it and keep it from rolling down the hill. 
But if that car is put in neutral and starts rolling down the hill and gains even just a little bit of momentum, do you think that you could stop it from rolling downhill? No. Once it gets started to move, it's going to be impossible to stop it. Momentum. It's a, it's a force all its own. And once sin gains momentum, it's virtually impossible to stop it from reaching a full-grown state. James says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. You see, Achan had become like a man seized by an octopus. Sin, with all its tentacles, had wrapped around him. And by the end of the chapter, he had broken several commandments, all starting with one. You know, there was the covetousness, then dishonor, the theft, the lies. Uh, I think it really was... uh, failure on Aiken's part to walk a life of faith seeking as I keep mentioning, seeking satisfaction, seeking security he was seeking them in the material things he was lusting after the things of the world, in this case things that were devoted to as scripture would call it, devoted to destruction He wasn't seeking his security in God. It's this spiritual condition of dissatisfaction that led him to take matters into his own hands. He believed that he could meet his own needs through his own hands. And I think where we see ourselves here is it's so easy for us to be discontent with where the Lord has us at our station in life. (coughs) It's our failure to find contentment in the Savior and His love and His grace that I think can be the cause of a great deal of our own self-made misery. highlighted this thing in Matthew 6 when he said, he he warned the disciples against storing up treasures on earth, against worrying about the details of life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not simply a matter of trusting in God's supply, but the issue of having faith. God clothes the, clothes the grasses of the field which are here today and thrown into the fence, thorns tomorrow. Won't he do much more for you? So don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? You know, in the big scheme of things this may come as a shock to you but 
there's really no one of us who deserves anything less than what Achan received. None of us are law keepers. None of us have sufficient obedience on our own to avoid the wrath of God. We are law breakers. And yet, I think the whole point here of Achan's rebellion and punishment is to remind us, to remind God's people that we have transgressed. We have transgressed the Lord and cannot possibly save ourselves. It takes the death and perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Reflecting back upon the resurrection, reflecting back upon Easter. That is what Easter is about. To help us think that when we look upon that cross that we were meant to be there. See, God freely gives to us everything that he demands from under the law. You know, we have transgressed. And I said Achan got what he deserved. When we think about it, Christ now got what we deserved. Jesus Christ took what we deserved and gave us life in return. We need to watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. We need to pray that we do not find ourselves in the position that Achan found himself in. And we need to pray hard. We need to pray with earnestness that God will keep us on our toes watching and praying that we will never become dissatisfied with the life God has given us. That we would never be unwilling to rest in God's providence and in God's goodness. We need to pray that we will always walk by faith and seek our satisfaction, seek our security, seek our significance only in the Lord and not in the material world. So that when temptation comes, and don't think that it won't, so that when temptation comes, unlike Achan, we will be able to overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we can see, open our eyes to see that there could be Achan in all of us. That we have been and even are lawbreakers. And yet Christ got what we deserved and gave us life. And he gave us life. Father, help us to be satisfied with the life you've given us. Help us to appreciate where we are. 
Help us to rest in your in your goodness, Father. And Lord, help us to live a life where we are trusting you not only in the hard things, but are turning to you and trusting you in what may seem to be the easy things that we're not forgetting to walk by faith in every situation. Father, give us the strength when the temptations of life come along to overcome them. We give you thanks and praise your holy name.